Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Controversial subjects with the facts can be tense, but we are a science here to make things make sense. Today, we are talking to the brilliant Dr. Esther about neurophysiology, your hormones, but most importantly, starfish sperm. (laughs) (laughs) We did already have this conversation and uh, it's in the future for you, but it's in the past for us and it was really amazing. It's so so freaking good. Oh my God. I'm obsessed with the sexy, sexy energy (laughs) of the starfish. Um, How's it going, Greg? Um, pretty good, I guess. Consider I feel very grateful to live in Canada, not the not the US. I'm scared and sad yeah. for the numbers and I just wow. wow. This podcast is probably coming out in a couple of weeks, so it's possible that the numbers are even scarier. Hopefully not though. We'll find out. Well, I mean, ugh, whatever. I don't I mean that's not what this episode is about, but sure. the world is watching America. We're thinking of you and um I mean elect politicians who believe in science. That's all for concern. Um, okay. I've been feeling fairly centered because I have been meditating a little bit every day and it's been like two weeks in a row and I feel good about that. Wow, that's yeah. Just like ten minutes a day. I just like have so Simone Gertz, who's another YouTuber, has this thing called. An I believe it's pronounced Gertz. I, I think that I think it's yeah. Actually, I think it's Gertz. <laughs> okay, sorry. Okay, hopefully she's not listening. <laughs> no, I mean she's literally told us. It's she's been on this podcast and told us how to say it, and we still don't know. Okay. Um, but she made this calendar that you can light up each day that you do something, and she actually created it so she could meditate more. And I didn't start for a while because I knew once I lit up one day, I would not be able to stop and I wouldn't be able to skip a day because it ruins the look of the calendar. So I waited, but I finally started and now I've been doing it every day. Feels good. It's so funny. It's also something ironic about yeah. like the like inability. You're like, like well, I have starting. to meditate and if I don't yeah. meditate. <laughs> That's true. No, I, it is just there's something satisfying about being able to like push the little button, the light comes on and then you did it. I listened um, to my medita- my meditation podcast at 1.5 times the speed. So I'm pretty sure <laughs> we're all having our relationships. It's just your meditation like music and it's like so fast. Like, <laughs> it's literally like we all are, I think a lot of people are learning about meditation at this time in like society in the world. Many people are leaning into it, but it's like we still are all living in 2020 yeah, though. And we're it's like, like well, we got to get it done efficiently. Yeah, yeah. It's like, <laughs> should I do it before or after I send a thousand emails? I'm blah, 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 blah. Yeah, so okay. true. Oh my gosh. Okay, I'm curious to know what you uh, learned about this week. Oh, what did we learn this week? So there has been anecdotal evidence that animals get drunk when they eat oh. overripe 
um, fruits, for example. Okay, I've kind of heard this before. Yeah, that have like fermented. I I mean, anecdotal, meaning like they watch animals kind of like get a little tipsy. (laughs) Maybe they, you know, dance up in the club. Isn't that a catch song? Kind of get a little bit tipsy. TikTok, (laughs) these little animals. Wow, she predicted TikTok. Okay, Kesha is an icon. I tweeted that. I was like, like someone needs to make a TikTok about the Tesha song TikTok. And it like kind of did a well, but no one did it. Um, Anyways, um, I th- this is sort of in line with what we're talking about today, like how we study animals to learn more about ourselves, mm-hmm. et cetera. That's what Dr. Esther will be talking about. But elephants specifically uh, have been known to eat overripe fruits of the marula tree. Those are in predominantly in South Africa. They kind of oh, look cool. like oranges. They look cool and good. I've never had one though. <laughs> um, and they found that um, we have variations in our genes called the AD. H7 gene is the gene that we have, which codes for the enzyme that helps break down alcohol. There's variations within humans, but we, when we look at other species, we see that they do not metabolize alcohol as well as we do as, as humans. So we have a pretty, you know, Strong. Like no wonder we like alcohol so much, kind of thing. Is like we're able to process it. Yeah, well, I mean, we can have a couple of glasses of wine. Maybe we tell little secrets here and there. <laughs> but like for the most part, we're not like falling over drunk. Mm-hmm. Um, elephants, on the other hand, when looking at their ADH7 gene, really do not metabolize alcohol well by looking at their huh. genes. And so they found that even based on their size. Yeah, I was gonna say because they're huge. Like I was imagining it would take a lot of fruit, fermented fruit to get an elephant drunk. But. Yeah, no, but like because of how they metabolize alcohol and so poorly, even based on their size, they likely are getting drunk from these overripe marula fruits. So that's like all that they found. I thought it was, I don't know why, I just thought drunk elephants <laughs> <laughs> like made me like feel... Made you feel nice. <laughs> yeah, like it kind of made me feel happy and I'm picturing them like, you know, giggle, giggle, having fun drunk, but obviously like they, this was a playful study I in no way where they like it's this. dangerous. I want to see an example I've, I've heard and I think I've seen like drunk squirrels because they also find fermented fruits and then act a little bit silly. But then sometimes with squirrels, you're like, I mean, squirrels are already acting kind of like wired all the time. Yeah, they so act like they're more like on know. cocaine. I feel like elephants, like you'd be able to tell a little easier. But I want to see some footage. Also, I like I like the idea of squirrels looking at us stumbling home from a bar, being like, <laughs> "What a pathetic animal! Like, stop eating! We- like, or like, where's the fermented fruit? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like, I want to, I want to chill. Uh, okay, your turn. This week, I learned uh, a study came out that was showing how to strengthen sexual relationships in a romantic relationship, which I thought was cool. So for a while, scientists have known that, and previous studies have shown that, to improve a sexual relationship, a person has to be motivated to do that, to like to the needs of their partner. But what they didn't know for a long time is like, what are the most motivating factors? And that's what this study was looking into and has kind of discovered. So ultimately, they found that gratitude in a relationship is what motivates people to meet the sexual needs of their romantic partner. Hmm. And I thought that was very, very interesting. They found this out through a handful of three studies or three series of surveys and longitudinal studies. Basically, they found that people who are more likely to appreciate and be grateful for their partners are also more likely to have fulfilling sex lives. So that was like phase one. They didn't have to do anything. They just kind of like made the associations. Part two was a longitudinal study where they found that gratitude was positively associated with changes in sexual communal strength over time. Hmm. And in the final phase, they actually randomly assigned different groups to, uh, you know, write about being grateful towards their partner or write about that the gratitude that they received for themselves. And they found that those groups actually had improved romantic relationships and sexual relationships. 
I feel like a lot of meditation is sort of linked to gratitude. So oh, totally. it looks like we're going to be having sexy. some sexy times there, Mitchell. <laughs> um, well, one of, the, one of the caveats that the researchers did say is that you can kind of become used to this effect. So obviously when it's new, when you're focusing on gratitude and trying to bring more into your life, they saw this effect. But if you're doing it all the time, that kind of can become your baseline. I actually have heard about a pro uh, there's a phenomenon called hedonic adaptation. That is the fact that humans just get used to things. Even when something's great and exciting, like buying something new you're really excited for or waiting for, you know, like when you always think something's going to be great and it is, but eventually you get used to it. Mm -hmm. Like whether that's a toy or a car or a house, like you just kind of get used to it. So I think it's the same thing here. As much as gratitude is useful, if you're already in like a super grateful relationship, it might not be that useful to your sexual life. Well, I mean, and obviously I think great, you are always more grateful for newer relationships. Like I see how this could be intertwined with like, um, longer term relationships, having a harder mm -hmm. time because you can see how those, that person's changed your life more easily. Like when you first start dating someone, I assume, totally. whereas when you've been with someone for a long time, you sort of like forget yeah. the amazing, I mean, it's, it's like, I like that you said that hedonic adaptation. That's an important mm -hmm. thing for everyone to kind of like remember mm -hmm. in life. Cause it probably, it does have to do with gra with gratitude, with meditation, like being more like, okay, no, trying to remember these are why you love these things. These are why you should appreciate these things or mm -hmm. whatever. And That's it's important to remember like the previous studies and many studies show that it's completely normal to have declines in sexual satisfaction throughout a relationship. So it was more like they were looking for methods and mechanisms by which they could improve the motivations of people in relationships. Yeah. And hedonic adaptation, it's like not that we're ever going to like go to an Airbnb ever again or I don't know, maybe 2023. <laughs> but I really feel like that's when I think about that. When I get or something when I, new when and I, different, you mean? Yeah. When I first got to an Airbnb, I'm so excited then even by the second day i just come home and flop on the bed and i'm just oh, like, like i live here <laughs> yeah yeah you know that first hour of like whoa look at that yeah, shit like totally. it's amazing how fast all of a sudden you're just living in this space and you forget that how amazing it is like even though you've only been in copenhagen for a day like now the airbnb is not as special as it was when you first showed up i don't know if that makes sense to no people, that does but, that yeah. does <laughs> Um, speaking of sexual satisfaction, we have an amazing interview coming up. Okay, right what? I mean, like, it doesn't quite go there, but it's actually really funny. And stick around, stay along with it. It's sexy. I, I, it's very sexy. And uh, we touch on starfish sex. So, um, yeah, let's get into it. Time to get to know ya. Hello, Dr. Esther. Hi, guys. <laughs> Welcome to the podcast. How's it going? It's good. It's good. Thank you for having me. So Thank where you. are you right now? You are you have a British accent just somewhere <laughs> in Britain. Born and raised in London in the UK. How's wow. Greg's British accent? How's my British <laughs> accent there, Dr. Astar? I Every every American I come across that does a British accent, they always try to sound like Oliver Twist or something. <laughs> like I don't understand. <laughs> Please, sir, I want some more. <laughs> so where are you in London? Because I, I actually taught in science in the UK for one year in Folkestone. In where? Folkestone. Folks, yeah, I haven't come up. To be honest, Londoners, we don't tend to really go outside of London. So, um, yeah, I have no clue where that is. <laughs> okay, so where where are you, though, within London? So, okay, so I was in London, but um, 
Basically, I transitioned into the pharmaceutical industry and the particular site is just outside London called um, in an area called Stevenage. So I decided to move there. So I'm literally like just outside London. Oh, wow. So I was going to say, just for a bit of context for people who are listening, (laughs) tell us a little bit about who you are, what you do, (laughs) and then we can jump into chatting about that. Okay, so um, yeah, born and raised Londoner. Um, I am a biochemist turned neurobiologist turned antibody engineer what yeah uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> okay okay we need to get into this okay so my first question though was like when did you fall in love with science like do you have a specific moment or just like we're always curious what that is for people um do you know what i was always curious um but i've been asked that question before and i think the time when i well from what i can remember that science really resonated with me and sort of gave me that wow factor was um so during school I think I was like nine years old or something nine or ten and um, we had a lesson where they were teaching us the different characteristics that make something a human oh sorry a living thing and um and that just fascinated me so they so we had the acronym Mrs. NERG um and that was basically like all the characteristics that would make something a living thing so it was if i can remember um movement respiration sensitivity nutrition excretion reproduction and growth whoa i've never heard that wow. before that's such a good acronym <laughs> i remember one time in university somebody would like brought up okay does that mean a mule or what's the cross between a donkey and a horse do we remember? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, well, you mean the fact that it can't reproduce? Yeah, it can't reproduce. So it was like, yeah. is that not living? Because some like cross-species animals. And then the professor was like, oh. <laughs> <laughs> well, okay, okay. But it can excrete. Yeah. <laughs> but that's, that's actually, fine. that's kind of interesting. Because that's like, I, fi- I find that fascinating too. Like I've, I've, a lot of biology textbooks start with that. They're like, so what is life? I do British accent. Oh my God, sorry. I mean, like, I'm like dragging <laughs> in your country. Um but did you find, because I think that's like a profound thing as a nine-year-old to kind of think about, like, did you actually contemplate in that moment? Like, wait, I'm alive. That's not living. Or was it just like, like what made that so important to you? Because it's kind of um, like. Do you know what? So <laughs> I am. Um, so I was kind of like a really weird kid in that, like, during like the school playtime, I would kind of go to the playground and instead of playing with my friends, I'd like sit down and like find some snails to just play with. And so I've always been like fascinated with like things that are different to me and that can do different thing and have like weird stuff coming out of their bodies apparently. Um, (laughs) (laughs) So um, yeah, so from then, like I've always been curious about different animals. And so, you know, when I could kind of, understand that you know there were all of these different characteristics that made living things that look so different that act so differently to each other like that those were the characteristics that brought them all together I think for me that was just mind-blowing honestly so I have something to think about because this is something Neil deGrasse Tyson has said and for some reason I just am like I don't believe it but he says that salt is the only thing that we eat that's never been alive and I, I don't know why, but I'm just like, that can't be. But I, I think about it all the time and I haven't been able to figure out that that's not necessarily true. So that's just I, something for you to think about because I... I that makes sense. It's fast. It's like the only rock 
Yeah, because <laughs> even like, I mean, I presume we like eat other minerals and stuff, but maybe they're all coming from sources exactly. that were living at one point. Like they're coming from leaves or mm. from something that have been living. And then I think about how water sometimes fortified with minerals, but that's drinking. So, anyways, <laughs> I don't. I, I, I'm not here to question Neil deGrasse Tyson, but it's 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 one of those things that also it reminds me of like so fascinating about science. It's like everything we eat was alive at some point. Like yeah, it's it, just it's crazy. Like even when. Um, I'm not sure if you guys are aware of Brian Cox, but he's quite like a really popular um, sort of science communicator here in the UK. And, you know, I remember when I was sort of in like secondary school, I'd always make sure to watch his shows. And it's not that like, you know, I wasn't, for me, I, I never sort of had the idea of, you know, one day I'm going to go to space and, you know, I'm going to go into like astrophysics or anything. It wasn't that. It was like just hearing him just say things like, you know, the things that, stars are made of other things that we're made of too and just like thinking like oh, i am a star mm-hmm. yeah oh my god <laughs> i literally have shivers it's true that was it's- my conclusion from everything i am a star <laughs> <laughs> you are it's like it, it's it's philosophical it's like spiritual yeah. like mm-hmm. i think that that is i mean even for me like when i first fell in love with science was when i was kind of like in class like um is this not like the answer and like is this not <laughs> spirituality like yeah yeah yeah. so you were in so you you when did you i'm curious about all those things you said earlier i can't even rename them they were like such big words chemists yeah into like, the pharmaceutical world is that what you mean yeah like so you start what did you get your degree bachelor's degree in? so my bachelor's degree was in biochemistry okay um and yeah i guess with that i literally there was no I don't really think much into it. <laughs> um, I kind of just, during, like, when I got my college results, I just thought I really liked biology. I really liked chemistry. So let's It truly is together. so fascinating. Like, the, my biochem class were some of my favorite. Even for, like, for people listening who are choosing to go into university courses, like, I definitely would recommend because I think it is such a good clash of biology you can really relate to physically because yeah. it's like your own body and then being able to get into the microscopic of that and how it is just mind-blowing when you see it on the page and you get to learn about yourself you're like oh that's why i get nervous oh that's <laughs> why i get drunk like it's so much more personal sometimes than yeah, exactly. maybe other forms of like biology so biochemistry is what you major your bachelor's in and then you you go to neurobiology yeah, so um, so what was really good about my um, biochemistry course was that because um, you know bi- and biochemistry it's basically linked to lots of diff- like other different areas in science. So you know we then had a neurobiology um, course within our um, biochemistry course, and those series of lectures was kind of you know focused around you know the the sort of structures of different like neuropeptides and different like neural receptors and whatnot. And, you know, for me, that's what I found most interesting um, during my biochemistry course. And so um, when we, in our third year of our um, course, we could either do um, like a literature review or we could do a research project. And so I thought, you know, out of all of the courses that I, or lectures that I had during my course, the neurobiology one was the one that struck me most. So, um, you know, let me see if I can get a research project with the professor that was teaching, um, uh, yeah, teaching that those those series of lectures. And yeah, luckily I was able to get um, a research project with him and that actually formed the basis 
to my actual PhD. So I actually did my PhD um, with the same supervisor as well. Okay, so now we get to ask you, what was your PhD in for layman's terms? Because I read about it and I was like, what? <laughs> so um, I always say that my PhD was on the love hormone in starfish. That's like the layman's term that I would use. Um, so essentially, so in our lab group, um, so we were all working on starfish, um, but each person had their own, what we call like neuropeptide system that they were working on. So, you know, neuropeptides are sort of small or polypeptides or small proteins um, that can be um, produced and released by in the nervous system, but they can act both as neurotransmitters so like locally between um, different like neurons and nerves, but they can also um, like travel through the body to other tissues and other organs. So they kind of act as both like a neurotransmitter and a hormone, basically. Do they do that and in so, humans as well as starfish? Both? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, wow, okay. I know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, yeah, and, you know, the like different neuropeptide systems are evolutionarily ancient. So, you know, neuropeptide families that you would find in humans you find very similar peptides in starfish and in worms and in, you know, different snails. <laughs> yes. Yes. All of them. Yeah. So, um, so everyone was working on their own system. I was working on the vasopressin oxytocin system. So you've probably heard of oxytocin because that's like, you know, the love hormone, the hormone that gets released when you hug people and, and whatnot. And so, um, yes, I was working on that system. Um, and basically trying to, first of all, identify um, the neuropeptide in starfish, um, try to find out where it's found within the, like, the anatomy of the starfish, and then what its roles are in the starfish as well. So that sort of main, I mean, there were different, there were other parts of my PhD, but that was probably the main part of my, of my PhD. Are there many starfish near the UK? Yeah, so we have... Um, so we have what we call the common European starfish, so Asterius rubens. That was the, the starfish species that we were working on. Um, but so that's, yeah, that's like the most common one. We could literally just like go down to the seaside and just like wade through the coast and collect <laughs> like 50, 100 Wow. And did you, so you would actually go out into the coast, like part of your work was to be out. Yeah, we'd like get waders so on, like trudge with our like buckets. <laughs> Oh my gosh, I, I miss that so much. Like, I love the idea of being able to study stuff in school, but also being able to be outdoors, like having that nice mix. Like, was that part of something that drew you to that, to not be necessarily just locked up in a lab or in a lecture hall, but to actually be experiencing with your hands as well? Um. So honestly, like, I liked being in the lab. For me, like, being in the lab was a deal breaker. I had to be in the lab. But when it came to the like model organism that I would be using for my experiments. Um, again, I had a hard and fast rule, which was it can't be an animal that can bite me. <laughs> so literally, that was literally my rule. So, because um, I did like a summer placement um, during my, so between my second and third year of my um, bachelor's degree. Um, and that was in like a department of investigative medicine. And there they use lots of rodents to do different experiments and so I had to work with mice and rats and literally I'd spend like an hour in the room with them and I'd come out and I'd be sweating I'd just be like I'm not comfortable in this and I got bitten so many times 
And I was like, I just can't deal with this for like four years of my life. So give me an animal that doesn't bite, that like doesn't fly, that doesn't move me. <laughs> I'm good. <laughs> that's a starfish is a model organism yes, for you. Then. That's so true. They are literally my babies. Like, so when you're studying... When you're studying their neuropeptides, is it to find the nuanced differences in how that those peptides function in a starfish compared to humans or just generally? Like, what is the exact function in this species of starfish? Um, so it was for a number of reasons. Um, definitely we'll focus around the, like, as you said, you know, the comparison, because that would give us some understanding of how these neuropeptide systems have evolved over time. Um, because, so if we look at the animal kingdom, they can be like separated into, um, into I guess, branches. And so you have sort of like humans and other kind of like chordates or whatnot. Um, and then kind of a bit further down from that, you have starfish. And then a bit further down from that, that's where you have, um, you know, the worms and, um, you know, uh, spiders and, and all of those animals. And like currently with the research that's out there about um, particularly the system that I work with, there's a lot of information about, you know, vasopressin and oxytocin in humans. There's lots of information about um, this system in worms, but there's this bit in between with where starfish are and we have, we don't really know much about their nervous system how it functions, their yeah. physiology. So, you know, this is all kind of new territory and it's kind of a way to bridge the gap um, where, you know, we can kind of contribute knowledge um, there. So that was kind of one of the main reasons for, um, for studying that. That is so cool. Yeah, like when, I, when you're doing science like that where there isn't information until you figure it out, kind of, like, I can't even really comprehend that because so much of what we do is just taking studies and science and then, like, communicating it. Like, we aren't mm -hmm. actually ever having to deal with, like, no one knows this. <laughs> yeah. When you're when you're doing the science, like, I'm curious what that feels like. Are you, like, A, like, in my head, I'm like, this is the coolest thing ever because it's literally, like, I'm contributing to something that doesn't exist yet. <laughs> but B, like, how much harder is that? Like, how, like, do you go to other systems that are similar or are you really just, like, looking at the data and building a narrative that's brand new. Like, I, I just don't know very much about what that feels like. Um, yes, it's a bit of a tough one. I think in some ways it's easier because there's less information out there to actually read and consume. Um, but it also can be very frustrating. So when you do have data um, and you're trying to figure out what it means, it's really hard to do that when there's not much of the literature out there. So, um, you know, a lot of the times we do, for example, see if we can find similarities in related species or, um, you know, in yeah, closely related animals um, and try to sort of form an understanding based on the data we have and what's currently out there. Um, yeah. And so what what did you learn? Like what do what does that pathway do for starfish? So, um, you know, the saying, you know, the way to a man's heart is through. <laughs> stomach oh my god <laughs> that is pretty much <laughs> okay the way to a starfish is oh my gosh wait i have a random question about starfish then because i remember being told or taught that do like starfish like eject their stomach to dissolve like the things they eat is that true uh -huh. <laughs> do you know that okay so wait is this connected so like 
okay, that wait. is connected. Okay, okay. Oh my god. Okay, then explain it. Just explain <laughs> it because now I'm like freaking out. <laughs> so, um, so, um, so we basically like were able to identify the starfish version of the base press noctitocin peptide. We had it synthesized into like powder form. And then um, we basically sort of made it into a solution, injected it into starfish. And we found that this peptide, which is classically known in human as, humans as being sort of the love hormone, triggers starfish to vo- basically vomit their stomachs out of their mouths. <laughs> yeah. So it, oh it's God. insane. It's, yeah, it's actually, and like, so a lot of my, like research during my PhD, like not much of it was actually like behavioral stuff, like actually working with like live starfish. But pretty much whenever I did work with starfish, 99% of the time, it was just to watch their stomach come out of their mouth and like record that basically. <laughs> oh my God. Yeah, it's, it's insane. Like um, it's really potent. Like the actual neuropeptide is really, it's really potent. You need like a small amount, like a small concentration of it to cause that to happen um and and they also kind of change their body posture as well they kind of have like a humped posture Uh which kind of represents this whole like feeding behavior that they have because they kind of like hump over like let's say a muscle for example bring their stomachs out of their mouths partially digest the muscle then like bring it in as like a soup and then like do the further like final digestion within their bodies and it's just really interesting to see you know, a neuropeptide kind of show what we actually see in sort of normal physiological um, environment. So yeah. that's, that's so freaking cool. I'm kind of turned on. Is that weird? I'm kidding. That is weird. <laughs> I'd love if a man would vomit out his stomach and eat a little bit of rock. <laughs> Wait, I have I have a couple of questions. This is so, that I'm so cool. Curious about. I'm sorry for just like, yeah, we're going off going on this. in. This is, okay, I'm like, this is now about starfish. So. <laughs> First, I'm wondering, because you said you uh, synthesize it into a powder form. Um, so is that fundamentally different? Like the oxytocin in a starfish or the vasopressin in a starfish, is it actually different than what is in a human? So um, so the actual like functional peptide, it's like nine what we call amino acids. So there's like they're like the building blocks to a protein or peptide. And um, like this this family of neuropeptides is is quite highly conserved across the animal kingdom. And so classically, not in all cases, but in most cases that we know of, um, the vasopressin oxytocin peptides that have been found are nine amino acids long. They pretty much all of them have um, a particular kind of amino acid between positions one and six which basically forms like they kind of join together and form like a ring structure and then like the tail at the end. And that's kind of like the standard structure of, um, of this family of neuropeptides. And um, in terms of the actual, like the other amino acids, we do see some similarities, um, but there are some like um, important differences that we do find in, um, in starfish compared to, compared to humans. So, um, you know, when we talk about amino acids, um, Sometimes, uh, you know, some of them can be acidic, some of them can be basic, um, and this kind of determines how they, you know, uh, function or, um, let's say, interact with their receptors and their physiological function and whatnot. So, you know, we do see some differences there, um, but in terms of, for example, the whole structure of the actual um, 
of the actual peptide, we do see like conservation across the animal kingdom there. So if wow. you were to put a human version of like could you ever do that just take it from human and put it in the starfish and or would, would it you, not fit would in you receptor, expect like... the same result or you know so um so we actually did that um that experiment not actually putting it in well uh... oh my god i'm shaking in my boots i'm like did they do it did they do it did they do it i'm trying i'm trying to think of the paper so i know we definitely um uh, so instead of injecting the peptide into um, the starfish straight away, um, we like one of the main things that we uh, that we tried to look at uh, for the paper or for my um, project was to actually identify both the um, neuropeptide, but also the receptor for it. And so we did experiments. Um, so when we were able to identify the, what, what we thought was the receptor, then we had to do experiments to actually prove that this particular neuropeptide, so the starfish one, <clears throat> would dose dependently activate this receptor. And that would kind of be our proof that they are like, you know, uh, peptide receptor pairs. Hmm. And so, um, uh, when it comes to presenting data like that, we also need to have like control. Selling a little or a lot. Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Also to show that yes, this one does dose-dependently activate the receptor, but this is specific to that particular peptide. So if we have related peptides, like the human vasopressin um, <clears throat> or oxytocin, it's not going to also dose-dependently ah. activate the receptor as well. So we, so we performed those experiments and we were able to show that other related vasopressin uh, oxytocin peptides um, didn't dose dependently activate like the starfish one to the starfish receptor. So you literally did that to almost prove though in a control setting that it, it doesn't work. Therefore it's different. Whereas the starfish one does. Yeah. Wow. Okay. My last question. Oh, yeah, I know. Now I'm last question to nerd out about this is how do you inject it in a starfish? Is it literally through like a needle and syringe or is it some other mechanism? Yeah. So we have um, a sort of standard um, needle and syringe Um so, like, the starfish body is kind of weird in that it has, like, an exoskeleton. And so, like, when we sort of, we can inject into, like, any of their arms or whatnot, but um, you kind of have to inject it on, like, the side of the arm. 
to make sure that you're kind of hitting the soft tissue because if you kind of go hmm. a bit above then it's you're hitting hard. yeah yeah you have like the ossicles there and you, yeah you can't um you can't really push the needles through that um so we had to you know make sure that we're kind of getting it in through the um through the sort of like softer tissue um but it is interesting because um when we were kind of initially doing these experiments we weren't really sure where to inject it um so it's kind of <laughs> there's a bunch of starfish that you poked all over yeah <laughs> um but um yeah because so because we'd already like done these um like for example we had this like um expression data that showed that um this particular neuropeptide was sort of expressed in the stomach of the starfish so we thought you know maybe we kind of need to inject it closer to the stomach um, but the problem there is that as you go further up the arm of the starfish to like their center where they like have their stomach, um, sort of on the sort of upper bit of the um, of the arm, that's where you have their gonads, which are basically like their sex organs. So okay. Organs. Yeah. Hot. And um, <laughs> and um, and so you kind of have to make sure that you don't hit their sex organs. Um, <laughs> Famous so, words. Those are famous, important <laughs> words to live by. <laughs> well, um, depends, I guess. <laughs> so, like, it's happened multiple times. Like, and you know, I don't hate men, but it <laughs> <happens>. <laughs> no, we hate men on this podcast. We turn. Oh my God, <laughs> I'm kidding. Man. I say that as a joke. I said that as a joke. I said it as a man. <laughs> it so happens that. Um, you know the sexual organs for like male starfish are very sensitive yeah <laughs> and so like if you like slightly poke it or like brush <laughs> it or anything it will just explode uh, and you just like <laughs> lo- <laughs> you have lots of like starfish sperm like just <laughs> everywhere. oh my gosh so i've literally had it where i've like injected a starfish and then i've like popped it back into the water and then like i've taken my hand out and suddenly the water's really cloudy and i'm just like oh like my hands right now like i'm violated this is terrible oh my god i love how it's like a really like intricate way of being like you jerked off a lot of starfish (laughs) but you're like i'm not here to do this Wow. Oh my god, Esther, oh my that's god. so funny. Did not expect this. <laughs> yeah. Okay, also I'm thinking like I feel like starfish are, can kind of be like sort of like a basic thing that everyone has like, you know, like people love starfish. And they'll have like starfish wallpaper and starfish tattoos. Every time you see that, you must be like, bullshit. Like you <laughs> yes. think you like starfish? I jerk them off for a living. And I don't even want to. And I've learned about their little levels here, honey. Yes, yes. You have no idea. <laughs> Because you wow. know what I mean? Like, I feel like they sell starfish, like, memorabilia. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They, they and, love, and you even get them, like, hardened. I guess they just, like, dry them. Okay. Out. okay <laughs> I, no pun intended. Oh, okay, okay, we need to move on. But that was yes, so fascinating. fascinating. <laughs> and I'm also crying. Like, that was really funny. Um, okay, so when did you start? When did science communication become something that you cared about? Like, at what point along uh, this journey did you even think about that? Um... It's actually interesting. So, um, like, I've always been interested about communicating my science. Um, but I think for me, um, it was actually when I was restricted in what I could communicate. 
um, that that's when I kind of became interested in science communication. So hmm. like in academia, um, you know, people are gen generally quite open about the research they do, um, you know, going to the lab, the different experiments that they're doing, you know, you can go to conferences and you can talk about the work that you do. But then when I transitioned into the pharmaceutical industry, that's a whole different kettle of fish. So, you know, because you are working on, you know, certain products, certain products that could at some point in the future become, you know, a commercial drug, for example, there are a lot of like, um, you know, legal restrictions in terms of what I can and can't say about the actual projects that I'm working on. Huh. So it was only, so basically I transitioned I started in the pharmaceutical industry um, about a year and a half ago. And it was at that point that I actually really kind of started to take science communication seriously because it was at that point that I realized that I was actually limited on what I could say about the research that I do. So that kind of made me sort of make a conscious effort to where I can, obviously not related to the work that I actually do, but where I can communicate science um, but also just like, you know, be more involved where I can in the actual science community. So, um, you know, I try to have a balance where, you know, yes, I will communicate science, but I also make sure to, you know, try and build a science community that is, you know, inclusive, that um, is open to anyone and everyone. So I've kind of been doing the two that way. Wow, that's really interesting. So it, it's like, do you, I mean, I don't even know if you can even say this, but when you join into the pharmaceutical industry, do you sign a contract that is very explicit about what you can and can't say? Or is it just like encouraged through the culture? Um, from what I can remember, um, I think it's just, it's literally just kind of like a general statement to say that things that are classed as confidential in a company you can't hmm, make that public basically. So whatever it is, it can be any product, any project, any equipment, whatever it is, if it's classed as confidential, then you can't speak on that basically. So even when it comes down to like, so I remember when I had my first day induction and they gave us a presentation and they kind of went through, you know, the things that you can and can't do on site. And, you know, they said, you know, taking pictures or videos in the lab, like you can't do that. And for me, as someone, you know, during my PhD, if I wanted to, I could take whatever pictures I wanted in the lab within reason, um, <laughs> you know, in not being able to do that, being told that I cannot do that. I was just like, oh, wow. OK, I'm definitely like restricted in what I can and can't hmm. share people about what I do on the day to day basis. Wow. That, that's so interesting. So then did you start your kind of like broader science communication? Did you go to a certain platform first or were you already yeah. kind of on like Twitter and Instagram? And, what's and, your, and I'm curious what your favorite one is now, too. So which one was first and what's your favorite now? Um, so so I've had Twitter for like years now. Um, probably like nearly 10 years or something. But honestly, I never really used it um, until sort of like the last few months of my PhD. Um, and it was only kind of after that. So once I'd finished my PhD and, you know, I was now in the pharmaceutical industry that I kind of really used Twitter more often and made sure to kind of post or communicate with people um, more often through there. And I kind of really, that was my... At the time, that was my only platform um, where like with or in the science community. So like I have my own like personal Instagram where I just like pose and that's all I do basically. <laughs> 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 um, 
And yeah, so Twitter was the only like platform that I had to communicate with scientists and about science. Um, but because like Twitter moves really fast, so I can post something and, you know, it can get a lot of engagement, but that all gets lost after a yeah. while and it's really hard for people to find that again. And, um, and because like, I really, really enjoyed the, um, like tweets that I did where I kind of encouraged different people to, you know, introduce themselves, you know, what's your science about, but also what's like a one cool thing about you as well. And just sort of seeing like people interact with those kind of posts and seeing in people interact with each other and actually like network with each other, like under those kind of posts, I found that like really rewarding to see. And so from that, I was like, you know, what other platforms can I use to kind of highlight different people in science, but also just like STEM as well. So like science, technology, engineering, and maths. And so I thought, um, you know, I could do an Instagram page, but I think for me, like at that time, um, I felt like there would be lots of pressure to like create content every day hmm. for Instagram. So I thought, um, probably the best thing to do would maybe sort of venture into videos and actually go into YouTube. And that way that could create literally like playlists that people can view and they can see, you know, um, Esther's highlighted this person or whatever, you know, that looks interesting. I'm going to have a look in that. And, you know, these kinds of videos, they have that longevity, you know, they're not just going to be gone in, in a day. You can view them as well, if they're up, you can view them a day from now, a month from now, a year from now, 10 years from now, hopefully. Um, so just sort of being able to, um, to kind of create content that people can easily search for or go through. Um, for me, that was definitely a big attraction to um, joining YouTube. And so I've kind of had, um, I started, I, well, I started doing STEM stories. So like, you know, researching a, um, about different like notable people in STEM. So this is from um, like present, but mostly from the past. <clears throat> I'm really talking about, you know, their work and um, and many of them were underrepresented either um, at the time or still underrepresented by our standards today in our society. Um, so I've kind of been doing that a lot, but then um, I've also branched into actually doing videos on like, you know, present day, real life, relatable scientists. So, um, so yeah, I'm kind of new to it, but um, just sort of seeing how that goes. Um, but then recently I have joined Instagram um, with a science specific Instagram page. So, um, you know, that's a lot of, again, pictures, quotes, just, you know, different things, you know, science, science life. And you're on TikTok. I am. I completely forgot about that. Oh my god. Yeah, I've seen it. I forgot about that. Yeah. So um I don't know, someone just like randomly messaged me to say, Oh yeah, um I see the videos you do on, on YouTube. Why don't you just do a tick like get TikTok and um, you know, that's a great way to appeal to like the younger population. And so I was like, you know what, yeah, like that would be a great thing to do. So um, I mean, I am trying to like post more regularly, but it's hard, like having all of these like different mm -hmm. platforms. Yeah. And trying to, 
you're present there all the time. And so your job, and your job in the lab at the pharmacy. <laughs> yeah, like like you, truly, you do a lot. Social media is a full time job <laughs> when you're trying to. Yeah, every different platform has a different format or style, and you don't want to just post the same things everywhere. So it's and like, your yeah. YouTube videos are so well researched, and you're right. Like a lot of them are highlighting people who are underrepresented. So there you go. It's like you have to almost put more effort into them. Like they they are really well done and they involve lots of like coordination. So it's like, yeah, no, you definitely are doing a lot. So I can understand why it's hard to post on all those platforms. Yeah, like even, even now, like I, like my daily routine is like, obviously we're in the lockdown at the moment. And so I'm working from home, but I still have like work to do. So, you know, 8.30, I get started with my like actual job as an antibody engineer. Um, you know, then it's 12 p.m. lunchtime. And then that's when I grab something to eat, <clears throat> open my personal laptop and then just start doing like sort of science communication stuff during that lunchtime break. Wow. And then it's 1 p.m. And then I kind of have to go back to my actual job that pays me <laughs> until five. <laughs> Get off that, have like some dinner or like just watch something on TV for a bit and then open up my personal laptop again and like do stuff till like 10 or 11 p.m. And then go to bed and repeat the next day. And it's just it's a lot. It's literally like having two full-time wow. jobs and yeah, it's a lot. It's yeah, a lot. I mean, yeah. good for you. You're doing amazing. If you, would you want to be solely focused on the sort of science communication? If you could be, is that a direction now you're wanting to go more in or is it kind of like, would you always want to have one foot in the sort of either the lab or working in the pharmaceutical industry? Like, do you have a, a an opinion about that? Um, I would say that my passion is definitely much, you know, being a scientist and, you know, I still want to, as of now, you know, still be in the lab, still do experiments, still have, um, still have a say in, you know, what happens in, you know, um, well, in my case, in the pharmaceutical industry. Um, so for me, that's still very much important. Um, I've kind of, I've kind of taken a very laid back approach when it comes to what life will throw my way because from past experience things have like yeah my journey in my career has not gone the way I planned at all like I just had like different things happen and so for me like whatever opportunities come my way at the time if for me they seem like the right opportunity then I will go for that to be honest so at the moment I don't I can't necessarily say that I will 100% until my dying day, you know, be in the lab as a lab scientist. I can't say that. Um, but at the moment, I really enjoy kind of the best of both worlds um, and being able to to do both. So, yeah. That's amazing. I, yeah, I definitely, there's a big part of me that really, not that, I mean, I worked in a lab during university, but I... I definitely miss that side. Even just being in academia and being fully surrounded by it, like hearing about your research on starfish, I'm like, oh, I'm so sad and yeah. jealous that we don't have that. I mean, obviously, science communication allows you to explore so many topics, but not yeah. to the same level level of depth. And I and it I does mean, like it didn't. That was the same thing for us. Like I was a science teacher, and it this all happened. It was out of our control. We never prepared to be full time science communicators, and then it does happen. And it is like it's really important that you like reflect on that and that's really cool because I think we were so young that we didn't like we I talk about it all the time I'm like I miss interacting with humans <laughs> like I miss like teaching I mean now students. we all do yeah in exactly that, no, honestly when quarantine happened we were like welcome to our lives everyone <laughs> but um 
like it's that's really cool because I think that's a really great way to approach it. The fact that you're doing both now and you can kind of like actually have a more balanced idea and really thinking like what do you want what do, and like and also take time for yourself because I'm like oh my god is that seriously your yeah. day? Like that's like really busy. <laughs> but I know in quarantine it might feel a little less like you're missing out on things because like everyone's stuck at home that maybe you're taking advantage of this time but exactly Exactly. yeah so yeah so when you know before this um before this lockdown you know i'd I'd limit i mean i would try where i could to you know do some of the science communication stuff during the evenings um but you know there were some weekends where you know i didn't want to film something for youtube i didn't want to spend um you know the whole of my weekends editing, for example. And so I would make sure to take that time to um, to just like hang out with friends or see my family, you know, just do stuff that made me happy. So, um, you know, I, I'd say that at this moment in time, because obviously I do have a full-time job as well as doing this, I can't be as consistent as like other people like you guys, for example. Um, you know, I'd love to, bring out content you know every day or every week or whatever but you know yeah there are times where I literally have to take a week or two weeks or three weeks off just to do me and then come back like refreshed and ready and happy to kind of um yeah go into to do more that's awesome communication that sounds like balance that sounds like something a lot of YouTube people don't have and then they end up cuckoo crazy okay (laughs) like like i'm like you're sounding very like a balanced intelligent person hashtag science (laughs) (laughs) Uh, but i would say yeah take it as it comes you know like you said like when opportunities come up you just kind of see where your life will take you and you'll always be connected to science even if you're not in the lab or you're not science communicating like you'll always find your interest through learning about the world and that's probably ultimately the thread that will carry you and i think us as well like yeah but we do love your youtube channel (laughs) and we do and i'm like i do want a new video (laughs) we're waiting (laughs) no don't put pressure on her (laughs) no listen sign me up guys sign me up no the thing is though like i just feel like i feel like with youtube i'm i'm i still feel like i'm a novice like even when it comes to editing i see like the way other people edit and i'm just like oh my god that looks so amazing like how did you make it look so professional and stuff and i don't know it always kind of makes me feel a bit of a way it's just like you know, if I had more time to kind of, you know, research, you know, how to edit in a certain way or had like all of these like really lovely backgrounds and props and stuff, you know, yeah, there's a sense of, yeah, I try not to compare myself to people um, too much, but there is that, you know, when you do look at other people who are doing YouTube videos, you're like, oh, I could be better. But, it, yeah, but- it, it takes time. And like, if you go back and look at like, we've been doing this for eight years. If you go back and look at our first videos, like it's yeah. they're like, it's just like it that's part of the process it's it's sort of mm. like art it's like you have mm. to start somewhere build out a process and like create like a voice and so i think like it's kind of like even thinking that way is really is like a part of the process i'm not saying like oh it's cool and it's good cuz obviously you're saying you feel some type of way about it but it's like that is part of it cuz you you have to start somewhere and it's like it is really hard and editing is about finding a voice and like uh that takes like years sometimes for people and like and it, young, is, like, it is also like so time consuming as well <laughs> you yeah. know what i mean like having to edit all on your own too like not having me I, I don't know for sure but i assume is like a whole other layer it's like would like to do some editing for me <laughs> yes <out>. yeah <laughs> honestly people listening to this reach out doc- at dr esther <laughs> oh, <Please help> me. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> but yeah, like, it, it takes time. Like just having to watch yourself over and over again, or like listen That's to yourself over and over again. Oh my god! <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you quickly get used to like your voice and stuff. Though I remember in the beginning yeah. just being like, "Oh, I hate the way we talk." I you know? still hate yeah. the way I know. <laughs> Oh my god. And okay, so what's sort of next for you then, do you think? Like obviously you said you've, you've had a lot going on. You've been like putting out a lot of content right now online obviously in tandem with your job. Do you think you're just going to kind of ride where it is right now or do you have sort of like plans in your mind of what you're hoping to do next? I don't know at the moment. I guess I don't know. I I guess I just want to I want to just do what makes me happy. And I know that sounds so corny. No, <laughs> um, it's like kind of the meaning of life, hon. You figured nine years old, you're like, what is life? I'm like, you figured it out pretty young age, playing with your snails. <laughs> true. But um, yeah, like I think just as long as I'm happy and still passionate about putting out the content I'm putting out, then for me, that's kind of good enough. Um, obviously, it would be good to, you know, just kind of see things still grow and um yeah and just sort of see more engagement and you know if that turns to you know monetization i will not take i will not like you know <laughs> i say no <laughs> i would take that um, <laughs> but um but yeah i guess just you know as long as you know when there are those long days and i'm tired but i still have to you know put content out if i'm still happy to do that even when I am tired and I've got lots of things going on, then for me, that's that's good enough. Because the worst thing is just not being passionate about something, but still having to do it um, just for the sake of doing it. And I think if I ever get to that point, hopefully I don't, but if I ever do, then for me, that would be a time to stop and not do it anymore. Um, but I think as long as I kind of get, um, you know, engagement and like, it's really encouraging just sort of having people message me and just say, you know, I found this so useful or this is like, I showed this to my child or something like those kind of messages, they mean a lot and they really give me that encouragement to keep going because even if I don't think that what I'm saying is worth anything, there are people who are literally like, you know, their lives could change based on what the content I put out. So, you know, for me, I feel like, you know, there is that responsibility, but it's something that um, you know, I find satisfying as well. That's what I mean. What you make is really meaningful. I think that's like something that is like more like, no, it is. It's like, it's like your YouTube channel, like that series about people underrepresented in science is like so smart and it is so much more meaningful than so much other science content. It's actually like I, when I was watching it, I was like, this is like what you don't get taught in school, but should. Yeah. And it's like, you're doing that like for, like you're essentially just doing it literally like for people in many ways. Like, so like, I just think that that is something that like, if that's your motivation, that's amazing. And like, that's really important. And it is going to lead to more responses like that, which if yeah. that's the driving force, that's awesome. And that will continue to like grow essentially. Cause it has to, right. Cause like, that's exactly, exactly like how that content like functions. And it's yeah. like really cool. And I'm like, I really encourage you to keep doing it because yeah, I've watched them all. And I, I constantly thought that I was like, why oh. am I not taught this in Canada? <laughs> I think like, as, yeah, as you said, you literally hit the nail on the head. Like I was thinking, what would I have wanted to know when I was growing up? Um, and in terms of, you know, this, like when I was taught about the scientists behind the science, it was all white middle-aged men at that time. Mm -hmm. And, you know, being able to see other people, people that looked like me, 
um, just diverse people and just knowing that all of them contributed in significant ways to the science that we have today. Like that would have been something that I would have loved to have had when I was growing up. And for me, I was fortunate because, um, you know, in school, I was always, um, when it came to teachers, you know, they were always really supportive. They would always, you know, they recognized something in me. And so they would always push me um, to do better. And even my parents as well, they would always encourage any of my interests that I had. So even though I didn't see people that looked like me in science, I knew that because of the support system I had and the encouragement I had, I could pursue whatever I wanted to pursue. But there are some people that don't have that. They don't have that support system. So for them, they need to see that representation. They need to know that there, there were and there are people out there that are exactly like you who are doing amazing things that you could be doing one day. And so, um, yeah, I just hope that if, if anyone is in that position and they need that representation, that, you know, they can see that hopefully clearly in the content that I put out. Yeah, well, they definitely can now. And I think it's also really valuable, like with everything going on, it's like decolonizing science is something that I think it's finally really, it feels like people are really starting to have a real conversation around this. And so that, that content that you're making is so valuable to that. And I think that that's also what you just said is an amazing testament to amazing teachers and parents and like teaching is just so important. And I think even your videos, it's like sometimes teachers don't have maybe like not to give them excuses, the time or whatever to decolonize what they're teaching, but Mm -hmm. to have a resource like your YouTube channel or something where they can go and have the work done for them essentially is like, (laughs) you know, sadly sometimes what like some people need that it's like, it it could be a resource for teachers as well, which even when we make our videos is what we're always thinking. We're like, we're just hoping a teacher can find this and just put it on in their class and like sit down. I was going to say have a smoke, but it's like, no, they shouldn't be smoking in class. Like I actually, I've had like teachers message me and say that they've shared certain YouTube videos with their students. um, And these can be like, you know, secondary school students but even up to like um in academia as well so like they've sent it to their um to their undergrad students or their phd students so for example um i did a video on henrietta Lacks, who mm-hmm. isn't a scientist but there's a lot of controversy around the use of her cells and the profit uh, yeah the um the profits uh, that were made from using her cells which were taken without her consent and whatnot and the sort of scandal surrounding that and you know, that was, you know, I had like um, senior academics message me and say, you know, they've sent this around to their research group um, because, you know, it's important to know, like, you know, the material that you're using, you know, know the ethics behind that. So it's just really encouraging, like seeing that people are sharing it um, with with others and like that's a source of education. So, yeah, it's good. Yeah, that's amazing. So where can people find you on each platform? So I really need to, I actually really need to find a name that I can use like consistently. Like, yeah, I love Dr. Esther. Like, you know what I mean? I'm like, so, cause you have your separate Instagram. Sorry, you explain. I'm like, okay. Yeah, go. <laughs> so, um, okay. So yeah. So for my YouTube, it's Dr. Esther. Mm-hmm. Um, for my Twitter, it's at Est Odek. So it's literally like half of my first name and my last name. Um, for my science Instagram, it's called science.uncovered. Um, for my TikTok, so my TikTok is, I think that's Dr. Underscore Esther or Dr. 
dot esther i bet <laughs> if you type it in though it'll come yeah up. if it'll they search up. the name it'll i'm sure up. yeah with okay that's good um <laughs> yeah those are all the platforms aren't they yeah so yeah. then the, so the only one that's different is that you have like a separate kind of science instagram that Apart is like personal. more yeah yeah like when you go on it you get more like yeah science information and things like that whereas your other one is just like more of you. But you can follow both people if you want. <laughs> yeah, you can. Yeah. So my personal one is esther.phd. Yeah. So, because um, she knows about starfish. <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, thank you so much for your time. And thank you so much for educating us about starfish. Like, honestly, I don't know. I'm like, I hope people resonate with how much fun that was to hear. Yeah, I was truly. like, I I'm loved obsessed. it. Like, can we find the research you did if we look online? Like, in yeah, paper or something? so I do. Yeah, so um, so the research that I explained about the starfish, that was um, that was published um, last year, I think. So, um, so you can find that online. I'll tell you what, actually, follow my science Instagram. Yes. <laughs> I will be posting a link there. Um, I'll make sure to have, like, um, you know, those, like, story highlights. Yeah. And I'll make sure. So the plan is hopefully some point soon um, to have one on my um, on my PhD or like sort of different um, categories and I'll make sure to put the scientific paper in there. Um, but also, so we did have quite a lot of um, engagement because a press release was put out um, when that paper came out. So um, there are some news articles um, which kind of explain it more in layman's terms because I'm not sure people want to like look through like a 16 page scientific paper. <laughs> some people might. <laughs> Some might, not many, but some. <laughs> well, um, so I'll make sure to put like those articles there as well. If anyone, if if anyone just wants to have a look at that as well. Okay, thank you so yeah, much. It was so nice to chat with you. We appreciate it, and uh, yeah, everyone go check out Dr. Esther's content online. It's amazing. And when we get out of this lockdown, we are gonna come fly to the UK. Hopefully, at the I am hang out. Yeah, <laughs> well, we'll see when the lockdown yeah. ends. Once we get a vaccine, see you in 2023. <laughs> <laughs> All right, we'll see you guys next week. Uh, you can use the hashtag Side Note Podcast to talk to us about it, or tweet at us, or tag us on Instagram. And otherwise, we'll see you next week. Bye. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com.
Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you.